Before we get started, there's a lot to chew on right now. Between the pandemic, the incoming holidays, socially distanced, of course, and the political situation, it's been a rough year. Lots of us are struggling. That's why, in a few episodes, we're doing a special mailbag on mental health with special guest Dr. Sara Jukaku, a psychiatrist who specializes in mental health among young adults, who is also my best friend and spouse. If you have any questions, please email them to americadissected at crooked.com. The FDA officially issued an emergency use authorization for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, clearing the way for the first vaccines to hit arms yesterday. But four of the deadliest days in U.S. history happened last week, as the U.S. hits 300,000 lives lost to COVID-19. And two weeks from today, nearly 30 million people will lose unemployment benefits. And we still don't have a relief bill. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but it's all uphill from here. I feel like healing is coming. I hope this marks the beginning to the end of a very painful time in our history. That was ICU nurse Sandra Lindsay the first person vaccinated with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine in the U.S. For a lot of us, this was truly an emotional experience, a moment of hope in the midst of great tragedy. The first U.S. vaccines were deployed yesterday all over America, going first to frontline healthcare workers and residents of long-term care facilities. But before we talk about the vaccine, I want to remind folks that most of us won't get a vaccine until sometime in May or June, at the earliest. Which means that we're not out of the woods yet. Case rates continue to climb and hospitals continue to reach their saturation points. And I want to be clear about something. As hospitals shuffle to make room for more patients, it means fewer and fewer resources, doctors, nurses, ICU beds, for patients who absolutely need care. And as that happens, the ability to provide care for these patients declines, and mortality rates could skyrocket even further. This was Barbara Ferrer, L.A. County health officer and a friend of mine, talking about what the ongoing trends mean. Over 8,000 people who were beloved members of their families are not coming back. And their deaths are an incalculable loss to their friends and their family, as well as our community. We don't have to get here. What happens next is within our control. We can and must choose to mask up. We can and must choose to make safe decisions over the next few weeks. And we can and must have a relief package that includes direct cash payments out of Congress now. It remains to me unconscionable that we're asking people in the midst of this pandemic to forego earning opportunities to stop the spread of the virus without offering them the means of caring for their families, particularly during the holidays. What's even more unconscionable is that Republican senators are holding up a bill because they want to guarantee, get this, legal immunity to corporations who are sued by employees who contract COVID in the workplace. This week, we saw the first vaccines roll out we can confidently say that we've reached the beginning of the end of this pandemic. But it has been a long pandemic and people are suffering. And they deserve relief. Now, we're going to dig into all things COVID vaccine as we chat with Dr. Angela Rasmussen, virologist at Georgetown University, and Matt Herper, a reporter at Stat News. And as a note, I conducted these interviews last week, right before the FDA's emergency use authorization. We'll get to that after the break.
Our first guest today is Dr. Angela Rasmussen. She's a virologist and researcher at Georgetown University, and this is her second time with us on the podcast. Dr. Rasmussen, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. El-Sayed. Uh, can we all agree? I'm just going to call you Angela because yeah, you got to yeah, call me Abdul. Actually, call me Angie, and I'll call you Abdul. And I probably Angie, butchered okay. your last name too. No, that was great. Don't worry. Um, I no, I just I always whenever I get Doctor L say it, I'm like I don't know who that is. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I know, me too. All right, Angie. So tell us about the various vaccines that are now being reviewed. You know, we've heard a lot about mRNA versus traditional. Can you unpack what that all means for us? Absolutely. So the two vaccines right now that are being evaluated by the FDA for emergency use authorization are both mRNA vaccines. And mRNA vaccination is a relatively new technology in which the instructions for making the spike protein of SARS coronavirus 2, which is what your body makes immune responses to, is delivered using a lipid nanoparticle to your cells. So you get this injection, you get this mRNA, it essentially tells your cells how to make the spike protein, and then your immune system will respond to it. Mm. So we're basically sending an instruction booklet, in effect, into our cells so that they can then make a part of the virus. And what is the advantage of that over, a, you know, say, a traditional vaccine that just uses a part of the virus? There's a couple big advantages. So not all traditional vaccines use the entire virus, but some of them do. So inactivated vaccines like the influenza vaccine or the inactivated polio vaccine actually require you to grow up tons and tons of virus and then chemically inactivate it. And that can be logistically challenging in terms of actually growing up a ton of virus. In the past, there have been some pretty high-profile mistakes that have been made in the inactivation process in which people have actually gotten sick from those vaccines if they were improperly inactivated. So um, this doesn't have any virus at all, so it doesn't require you to grow up a bunch of virus. You don't need any kind of special containment facilities um, because SARS coronavirus 2 is BSL-3, so you need to do that in a higher containment lab. And there's no chance that you could actually get the virus from a vaccine like this. Mm. Another advantage is that it does make it faster to manufacture a vaccine like this. Essentially, this vaccine was designed over the weekend after the first sequences were uploaded to the public in early January. So you don't need to have an isolate of the virus at all before you can actually start manufacturing this vaccine and start testing it. Hmm. Okay. So on the manufacturing side and on the research side, it really speeds things up. What, what are some of the downsides of using an mRNA vehicle like this rather than the more traditional approach? So one of my colleagues compared mRNA vaccines to a Snapchat message, and that is that the mRNA gets in your cells and then it normally is degraded. So your own cells make mRNA as well. That's how you actually make any kind of protein at all. And mRNA often doesn't hang around for a very long time. If you have that message that's encoded on the mRNA in your DNA, in your genes, then you can just make more mRNA. But in this case, we don't have the gene for the spike protein. So once that mRNA is gone, you stop making the spike protein. And that means that these vaccines are not as immunogenic as um, some others. So they don't stick around and keep making more and more spike protein. They make it and then it's gone. That's usually why it's thought that you might need a second or booster shot to make sure that you can actually get robust long-term protective immunity from these vaccines. Mm. And then the, the other hard part is that 
mRNA, because it is so unstable, it naturally just degrades. And so we've got to keep this mRNA vaccine at an extremely cold temperature, and that introduces a set of logistical hurdles. Can you talk about how some of the folks focused on logistics of deployment are getting around this? Yeah, this is a really huge problem. And a lot of people, I think, think this will only be a problem for low and middle income countries. And that's absolutely not true. These vaccines have to be stored long term in a minus 80, minus 70 degrees Celsius freezer. Only usually hospitals and major medical centers have those. It's not as though there's going to be a minus 80 at your local Walgreens to store huge quantities of vaccine. The way that they're dealing with this in the U.S. is I believe they have a special shipper manufactured that uses dry ice to transport and store the vaccine at vaccine distribution sites. But in places, especially more rural places where there's less access to healthcare services anyways, this is going to be a tremendous logistical challenge. And it may not be feasible in places outside the U.S. where there are low middle income countries with very little healthcare infrastructure. It's going to be very, very difficult to distribute these vaccines in those places. And the way we usually think about testing, right, is that we will give the vaccine usually to healthy people and we'll randomize people to receiving it. And from there, we look at their probability of getting the virus versus those who got a placebo, literally salt water. Both of these vaccines, Moderna and the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, had really promising results in terms of their efficacy. But importantly, we didn't really test them in a couple of really important vulnerable populations. So, you know, seniors who are already quite ill or pregnant women. And what does that then tell us about what we think this vaccine might do in these populations, particularly considering the latter, especially those in long-term care facilities, are some of the first in line to getting the vaccine? How do we, you know, impute from the the studies that we've done uh, to what might happen in these populations? And does that give you any concern? It does and it doesn't. On one hand, it would have been nice to enroll an arm of pregnant women in this study. It also would have been nice to enroll children, even though children are not as susceptible to severe disease, they still can clearly transmit the virus. And that's also an issue, especially for people who are living in multi-generational households or with people who have other pre-existing conditions. And the number of events that these trials read out at is still quite low compared to the overall number of participants overall. So to a certain degree, we had to sacrifice getting information on some of those groups in order to get efficacy data as quickly as possible. What I think offsets this a little bit is that they are starting to evaluate the vaccines, at least in in adolescents. I believe that there are plans to evaluate the vaccines in pregnant women in much older people and in younger children. Now, how soon that can happen is an open question. And I suspect that if that's not actually occurring in the context of a trial by next summer, then some of those groups may start to get vaccinated once the vaccines are widely available and efficacy will be determined really uh, in the so-called phase four clinical trial, which is evaluating the vaccine after it's already on the market. Yeah, in the population. And is there any reason to think that there are, you know, considerable differences in the biology of a vaccine in in some of these these populations? Or is it just something that we really want to have sort of dotted our I's and crossed our T's on as we deploy this? No, we do know that there are often age-related, you know, different abilities for certain vaccines to work differently in different age groups. And pregnant women 
have compromised immune systems to a certain degree. Um, that's how your body knows when you're pregnant, not that your fetus is not a foreign invader that it should attack. Those populations are all potentially going to respond differently to the vaccine and have different immune profiles after being vaccinated. So it is going to be really important to look at those populations, whether in the context of another trial or just when it's on the market, but also to monitor those populations long term to make sure that the doses don't need to be adjusted. For example, in older adults, many flu vaccines need to be given at a higher dose or they need to be given with an adjuvant to better stimulate the immune system to produce the same protective efficacy that you see in younger people, for example. So it's entirely possible that these vaccines may be similar and that they need to be tweaked uh, for certain populations based on age or immune status. Yeah. And one of the challenges here, you know, is you're, you're talking about the immune response that really does give you the immunity, right? Is that when you kick up a body's immune system, there tend to be symptoms, right? And folks don't appreciate that. Oftentimes, it's the the symptoms that you are most used to when you get a virus are symptoms that are a function of your body's immune cells firing uh, and releasing all kinds of chemicals into your body that you know will raise your temperature and give you a fever, which will cause you to have chills, which may activate your tearing up and your production of the runny noses that we all get used to. And one of the things that some folks are worried about is that because this vaccine activates your immune response, that people are going to feel a set of symptoms that they're going to register as side effects. And sometimes people mistake that for getting the virus itself. And they worry because there's going to be a requirement for two doses that people might forego their second dose or tell family and friends that it was a terrible experience and that they shouldn't get vaccinated. How do we inoculate the community against misinterpreting these side effects uh, as something far more sinister than they really are? My short answer to that is that I don't know. My longer answer to that is that to some degree, I think we really should be calling on the manufacturers when they are reading out this top line, really good news efficacy data. They also need to share with us more details about what the safety profiles are for these vaccines and how reactogenic they are, how tough they are to take, in other words. I think that It would have been a lot better if, along with that good news, we could have heard, hey, this is a little bit more reactogenic than your annual flu shot, for example. We should be preparing people that getting these vaccines, you know, maybe they'll need to take a day off work to recover from getting the vaccine. Doesn't mean they're getting sick. We can educate them that it's actually impossible for these vaccines to give you SARS coronavirus 2 or to cause COVID-19. But we can't really do that if we don't know what we're telling people what to expect, because we don't know. So I think going forward, I think that in some ways, these expedited trials have been a huge success. Obviously, we weren't expecting to see efficacy readouts um, this high. But at the same time, I think we're learning in real time what not to do. We really do need these processes, especially when really everybody in the public is a stakeholder. We really need to have complete transparency with the vaccine manufacturers so that when they're sharing good news, they're sharing all of the news as well. Yeah. I mean, what you're speaking to here is the really important third phase of of vaccine 
production and dissemination, which is, you know, you have the scientific phase and we're pretty near done with that. Then you have the logistical phase, which is, you know, the deployment of a vaccine. And now you have the cultural phase, which is how do you communicate that vaccine so it turns into vaccinations in people's arms? And this may be a place where, like the rest of the COVID-19 response, we are sort of messaging on the fly. And that messaging on the fly carries with it a, a set of challenges because we need to make sure that we're being imminently transparent and that we're communicating with vulnerable communities who have unfortunately been taken advantage of by the biomedical establishment. And in one aspect of that, I, you know, I used to be the health director for the city of Detroit, which is the largest predominantly black city in the in the country. And, you know, I can tell you as a former health commissioner, when it came to vaccinations, the long tail of distrust because of terrible uh, instances like Tuskegee, like, you know, Marion Sims, like um, Henrietta Lacks, that, that people don't implicitly trust the biomedical establishment. In, in your mind, as someone who spends a lot of time talking about, about what's happening and what we need to do, what are the things that we need to be thinking about when it comes to that cultural phase of the vaccine deployment and having an honest, uh, effective conversation that inspires people to take the vaccine? That's a great question. And it's something that I get asked all the time and something that I hear from people all the time that, you know, they are not willing to take the vaccine because of that history, which has not been adequately acknowledged by much of the medical and scientific establishment. For everybody who wants to educate people about the legacy of Henrietta Lacks, there's many more scientists, just speaking from my own profession, who are working with HeLa cells and don't know anything about it. So I think that acknowledging that history and addressing it directly is important. But more than that, we need to acknowledge that these injustices are still occurring to this day. And the pandemic is a great example of that. Why have Black, Indigenous, and Latinx people been affected disproportionately by this pandemic? It's not biological. It has to do with existing health disparities that the pandemic has really brought into sharp relief. Only by focusing on equity, focusing on equitable access to healthcare, are we going to be able to overcome people's very valid doubts about how the entire healthcare and scientific enterprise is going to treat them? And I think that people of color are certainly justified in being skeptical of the process, being skeptical of the notion that they're going to get equitable access to these vaccines, that they're skeptical that they've been tested and, and run by their communities and that there's going to be community buy-in. So I think this really needs to be a combination of acknowledging the historical wrongs that are done, but also acknowledging the wrongs that are being done to this day and trying to address those um, both about the pandemic and more broadly. We really need to, to have people working with us, not think that we are trying to convince people to agree with us we need to engage them and collaborate with those communities uh, that, that will need this vaccine the most. Yeah. And I, I think you're spot on. There's a real responsibility to meet folks where they are rather than assume that they ought to be where you are. And I think, you know, there, there is a an aspect to this, you know, for folks who have the privilege of scientific training, the assumption that all of this is deeply rational. But, you know, if you grew up hearing about stories of people in your community being taken advantage of by these completely quote unquote rational people that violated your rights and took away your autonomy, you'd be questioning too. And, you know, I talked to a lot of my colleagues who are, are black folks and who are scientists and, and physicians. They talk a lot about the fact that there has to be a humility 
that brings us to to speaking about people's experiences and not just assuming that you know we can use our science as a bludgeon to cut through. And so I really appreciate that point. Angie, uh, so I, I got to ask you, right? And this is the, the question that's, that everyone asks. When are you going to get your vaccine? Probably sometime in the summer, May or June, when the general public gets access to it. I'm not a frontline healthcare worker. I do have asthma, so I don't know where that would place me in the line. You know, I anticipate that I will probably get it when the general public um, gets access to it. So I'm not trying to cut in line. Um, I want to make sure that, and I also am fortunate enough to be able to stay home and take these other measures that we don't need a vaccine for to reduce my own exposure risk. That's what I've been doing. And that's actually, that leads me to make a point that, you know, this is great news for those of us who are already there with vaccines. Um, Hopefully we can do what we were just talking about and convince others um, to get on board as well. But this is the beginning of the end. This isn't the end. We still have some months to go. And other countries around the world, um, and not just small island nations, I mean, South Korea and Australia have effectively used non-pharmaceutical interventions to control transmission in their countries. So we can do other things besides getting vaccinated while we're waiting for the vaccine uh, to be made widely available. And that's what I plan to do. And that's what I plan to emphasize because Right now, what we should be encouraging people to do is that wherever you are in the line, you should be taking these precautions to avoid getting infected or exposed at all. That's what I'm going to continue to do for myself and with my own family, and that's what I'm going to encourage others to do too, encouraging people to manage their expectations, both in terms of how easy the vaccine is going to be to tolerate, as well as when it will actually become available to most people in their own communities. Yeah, that is a fantastic and really, really important reminder is that that doesn't mean that all of a sudden we are um, done with physical distancing and masks and washing our hands. It means that, you know, like you said, it's the beginning of the end. You know, we got to do everything we can to both make sure that we and our families are getting vaccinated uh, when our local officials tell us that it's time. And also in the interim and even afterwards, uh, making sure that we are practicing Uh, the same habits that we should have been practicing for the past 10 months. Angie, it's been a privilege, as always, uh, to chat with you. Thank you so much for all of that helpful information and look forward to, uh, to hopefully seeing you in person soon, okay? Yeah, that sounds great, Abdul. Thank you so much for having me back. Always. Thank you again. That was Dr. Angela Rasmussen, a virologist at Georgetown University. Our next guest is Matt Herper, a reporter at Stat News. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks for having me. Well, excited to uh, to be talking. You know, we heard from Dr. Angela Rasmussen about some of the science pertaining to the vaccine, but I wanted to get a sense, bigger picture from you about how you're seeing the highlights and the lowlights of the vaccine effort today. It's been a, a pretty long journey. It's pretty amazing seeing when this started at the beginning of the pandemic, say back in February and March, and you were talking about Moderna and then Pfizer and BioNTech. Um, And then, you know, several other companies moving into trials with vaccines, it wasn't clear that we were going to have anything at this time point. And not only do we have vaccines, but the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines look very effective. And we've seen a lot of data now on the Pfizer vaccine ahead of the FDA's meeting on it. And it looks like a, a pretty safe vaccine too. You do get a lot of injection site reactions and some fevers, but it looks like a from the data we have, a pretty tolerable vaccine that that really does a great job 
preventing COVID-19 infection. Hmm. And that definitely uh, is uh, the highlight we've all been waiting for. How about some of the lowlights, some of the challenges that we still have in front of us? Well, I think the the AstraZeneca data that we've seen so far are very close to what we were afraid would happen with some of these vaccines, where results would be muddy, where you get protection that's good enough that it seems like it's better than nothing, but maybe not great, and where there are a lot of open questions. The distribution of all of these vaccines, look, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine needs to be kept in deep freeze. The Moderna one is easier to distribute, but still probably not a vaccine for a lot of the world. We don't know how fast we'll be able to make these. There are a whole bunch still in trials that we're hoping will work. Most of these vaccines, with the exception of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, are being tested as two-dose vaccines, which means we're going to have the problem of not only getting into people's arms once, but twice. And that is logistically hard. You know, one piece of good news is there does seem to be some protection if you only take one dose of the Pfizer vaccine. It's not great to have to worry about all that. Um, It would be obviously better if we had a one-dose vaccine with absolutely no side effects that protected absolutely everybody, but we're going to have to confront reality. Yeah. One of the uh, interesting things is that when folks who have been paying attention to vaccines for a long time realized that many of the vaccine candidates that would be tried would be these mRNA vaccines, sort of a new technology when it comes to vaccine and immunodelivery, there was some trepidation. Uh, It looks like these mRNA vaccines are actually outperforming the more traditional vaccine, the the Oxford and AstraZeneca vaccine being a little bit more traditional. Well, I wouldn't wouldn't call the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine more traditional. Most of the vaccine platforms being used against the pandemic have not been used with an approved vaccine. And that is also true for the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. We have not... It's true for the J&J vaccine, which is also a denoviral vector. There are no vaccines being used here that are really like your traditional, what we would have developed in the 60s kind of vaccine. There were a lot of questions about the mRNA vaccines. They had been used in trials, but never at this scale. As a technology, it makes sense that maybe it wouldn't be that. Maybe it would be a technology without many risks. I mean, it's kind of tricking your body into making the vaccine protein that you'd manufacture in vats. And we also do need to be humble with all of these. I mean, we're going to be going from putting these into tens of thousands of arms and trials to hundreds of millions to billions in actual practice. So to say that we know exactly what's going to happen is wrong. The results so far look great. That brings us to the the sort of second and third phases. You know, we've got the science or pretty close to the science now on having a safe, effective set of vaccines. But the deployment question really becomes the next one. And there's really two hurdles on the deployment side, right? There's the logistical hurdle and then there's the cultural hurdle, right? Well, will people actually elect to turn this vaccine into vaccinations in their arms? How do you see the efforts at addressing that? And what do you think are going to be the big challenges on on those two fronts? It's really hard to know how things are going to go logistically. To me, the positive on it is that particularly with the Pfizer vaccine, where there are the biggest logistical challenges because it has to be kept so cold, you also have Pfizer, which is a giant company with a huge bank account that has all sorts of reasons, reputational in addition to financial, to make this work. 
And I think that's the thing to make one optimistic, you know, but we haven't done well distributing paper masks. There's no reason that vials of vaccine should be easier than distributing surgical masks. Uh, and it's really hard even looking at the situation. It's really hard to know what will happen when all that logistical stuff starts rolling out, there's a lot being left to the states that could be good because stuff is being decided closer to the ground. It could also be bad because it means we didn't have enough of a plan. And that's just in the U.S. These vaccines are going to be very hard to distribute in a lot of the world. That was one of the big hopes about the AstraZeneca vaccine. You can make a lot of it and it's easy to ship. Yeah, I want to speak to that quickly. This sets up a really difficult situation where We'd all hoped that the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine was going to be as effective as the others because it was always going to be the one that would be easiest to deploy in low-income contexts. The challenge now is that the results suggest that there is going to be a tierage in the vaccines, and the one that is, at, at least at this point, the, the least effective is the easiest to deploy abroad. I'm wondering what kind of challenges do you think that that's going to set up and um, how is it that we think about making sure that there is accessible vaccine for the rest of the world beyond just the UK, the US and, and other high income countries? It's very difficult. It may be that in some places we make decisions that are tough and that we it's better to have a vaccine that's not as effective than no vaccine at all. I don't know how you square that circle. I, I guess the hope really is going to be the J&J &J vaccine is also is not that different from the AstraZeneca vaccine. So maybe that one comes in better. Maybe the dosage differences in the AstraZeneca trial where it appears that a starting with a smaller dose and or waiting in between when you give the doses, having a bigger time difference resulted in a more effective vaccine. You know, maybe we'll get lucky. But this has always been kind of the risk of having all these vaccines. You know, when you say that some of them will be good for some populations and some others, that sounds nice. But when you think about it, that actually means that some people may get a better vaccine than others. And there's, there's just not really a way around that. I think a lot of people are very troubled by the ethics of that and want to work really hard to make the situation as good as it can be. If the reality is that there are people that we can get a 60% effective vaccine and we can't get them a 95% effective vaccine, it doesn't make sense to tell them they can't have any vaccine at all. So we're, we're going to have to figure that out. Yeah. Over time, this stuff will get better, but we don't have time. Yeah, we're going to have to think a lot about how we maximize our capacity to move the most effective vaccines to folks who, for a lot of reasons, you know, are set up to suffer a worse pandemic curve. I mean, you think about India, for example, and the capacity to deploy a vaccine that has to be kept at, you know, negative 80 degrees centigrade or 40 degrees centigrade uh, becomes really challenging. But at the same time, right, the difference between an, a 70% effective vaccination and a 95% vac effective vaccination, when you're talking about a billion people, really does make a difference. And so, you know, this ethical challenge is, is a really big one. And we're going to have to think long and hard about how we do that deployment and how we uh, at least try our best to get the best vaccines out there. For sure. But the, the realities of the vaccine needs to be kept cold are the realities, right? And there's also the manufacturing realities of when you look at Pfizer and BioNTech and Moderna, you're not talking about enough vaccine to vaccinate the whole world. You're talking about little more than 
500 million people worth of vaccine, more than the U.S., but not not everybody. And that's if we don't run into problems. Yeah. And what that suggests is that we still need better research, like the hunt for a vaccine isn't yet over. And I think that that may be part of the challenge here is that we sort of, you know, we think about these questions in terms of what's best in our particular population, but the contours of what you need in the design of a vaccine means that you have to be able to deploy it and it has to be safe and effective. And, you know, once you establish a floor for safety and efficacy, you've got to keep fighting to build a vaccine or to find a vaccine candidate that meets your requirements and also doesn't fall too far behind that floor. It's a it's a challenging ethical issue. Some companies are working on that better vaccine. I mean, Merck has two vaccine candidates that are both aiming to be a single dose vaccine that could go anywhere in the world. One of them might be oral. They won't start testing until kind of the original time frame that Dr. Fauci was talking about at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, sometime early to middle of next year. So, yeah, I, I think there is a lot of effort on that. I mean, we'll have to see how many people can get vaccinated with the vaccines that we already know work. It does get more difficult to study vaccines once you have effective vaccines. You can't go to the same places and do the same trials. It's not ethical, obviously, to offer somebody a placebo when they could get a vaccine at their doctor's office. Yeah. You know, the ethics of this are so complex, right, for that exact reason. And also, even the, the, the capacity to study once you have a population at baseline that has received vaccine is limited, right? Because the spread of that vaccine is slower and the ability to actually get contrast on either side of the study is 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 harder. I want to ask you, there is the cultural component even here in the United States that there are a lot of folks who are weary of the process and they may be somewhat hesitant considering, you know, the, the politics of this election season. What do you think are things that we need to do to be addressing that fear, inspiring people to believe that this uh, vaccine is safe and effective given what the data are showing us? It's a very tough problem. I've been writing about vaccines for a pretty long time. Uh, one I've written a lot about is the HPV vaccine, not only for preventing cervical cancer, but also that virus causes head and neck cancer, often in relatively young males, middle-aged males. I've written about people who've died from HPV head and neck cancer. It's a, it's a lethal disease. There are a lot of people who are very distrustful of that vaccine and believe, despite really good studies that show it to be very safe, attribute all sorts of side effects to it. And the problem is that bad things happen to people all the time. And that means bad things happen to people who took vaccines. So you need to do careful studies to figure out if the bad things are caused by the vaccine or not. But it's very easy to point to someone where something happened and say, well, and blame the vaccine. And I'm worried because that gets even worse in situations where there's a lot of attention to a vaccine or a drug. I've been covering drug safety for my whole career. And you get more reports of side effects when a drug is in the news because people know they're taking it. So we're facing all that. And then we're facing the cultural problems, the political division this vaccine hesitant people, but there's also a problem that normally the old saw in the pharmaceutical industry is not to take a drug until it's been on the market for a few years. We really want people not to follow that long held advice here because there's a 
there's a big enough risk to society and to individuals that you really should take that vaccine now. But it's a very hard problem. And I'm, I worry we have to make sure that we don't get out ahead of the information we have, I think. But we also are going to need really good public messaging from the government and from public health officials about what we do know about this being safe. And I think people often make it about, oh, well, this is a safe thing. But I think we want to be honest and say that this is a, this is a thing we should, everyone should do because the benefits outweigh the risks. It's a hard message to say exactly right. You know, you don't want something like a report that something or other happened to someone who got the vaccine to completely freak everyone out and people don't get inoculated against COVID. I do think that as this rolls out, you know, we're rolling this out first and it's going to be healthcare workers first, essential workers, long-term care facilities. And I think that... A lot of those people are going to want a COVID-19 vaccine because the risk is very, very real to them. And so by the time we get to people who are actually hesitant, I think there will be a lot more experience with these vaccines. And that's that's probably a good thing for dealing with this hesitancy. And sadly, we're going to see the worst of this disease before most of us get an opportunity to get a vaccine. This month, next month, Every public health expert I talk to says it's going to be really hard. I think the risk and what it is we're trying to prevent will sink in a bit. You know, vaccine experts have been complaining for years that, you know, people don't understand why the vaccine is so important, that vac- vaccines are victims of their own success, something you heard a lot. And, and sadly, that's not true here. And so I think, I do think there's, a good chance that the, the severity of this will sink in. But, you know, all the political division and the people who say that it's not happening despite the number of people dying, you know, the, the denial certainly aren't going to make things easier. And I hope that we can negotiate that as a society. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, I remember talking to my grandparents for an episode we did about vaccines before COVID was ever a thing. And they're talking about the polio vaccine and uh, the fact that they and their family got in line to get a polio vaccine because all of them had known somebody who died of polio. Uh, and this was such a, a scary thing at the time. I worry that, you know, th- this vaccine will come at a time when we will have gone through the worst of this pandemic. The challenging part is that, you know, in asking people to wear a mask, we're in effect asking them to do a thing that is very similar insofar as there's a collective benefit for a nuisance that one has to deal with. There is no risk to wearing a mask and there's not even really any discomfort. That's right. I jog in a mask. So you're not dying of CO2 or whatever people talk about, you know? That's that's exactly right. I mean, it is a minimal, it's a minimal risk and a, a minimal discomforture. And still there is this sort of political challenge here. But what's interesting is that a lot of the challenge with the hesitation around this particular vaccine, I think, does stem back to the politicization of the vaccine during the election season. And what's interesting is that in Donald Trump's effort to take credit for the vaccine, you may have this countercurrent around masks so that the same people, right, for political reasons who opposed wearing masks may now, for political reasons, support taking the vaccine because of how they allocate it to a political force. Uh, I'm wondering what you think about the way that politics has shaped both our discussion around masks versus the vaccine uh, and how you see that playing forward. I just don't know. It is so, so hard. 
I write about medical evidence, right? I write about how we know things in medicine. The hydroxychloroquine debates that happened were very problematic because, you know, we really have so many trials showing that in so many areas that drug doesn't help in COVID-19. And somehow it got politicized and the way you read medical data became politicized. It becomes this very fraught situation because you end up with people on both sides who get on vaccines. There are people who are worried because the process is moving too fast. And then there are people who are distrustful of the system. I think that one thing that may be positive is I think that the Trump administration is trying to take a lot of ownership of the vaccines. And so maybe if we're fighting about who gets credit, that gives everybody a reason to believe in them. That's kind of a positive hope for me that will have great evidence for the people who require great evidence and the people for whom there are other reasons they believe they'll believe too. And maybe in this case, we don't need people to believe for the right reasons, <laughs> right? We don't need it to be because of the evidence. If, if it's whatever it is that gets you to roll up your sleeve, that's maybe good enough for us. We had Chelsea Clinton speak at one of our events recently, and that was basically what she said. She said that that she hopes that the Trump administration takes ownership of this now because that'll mean that people on both sides will feel that that the vaccines are something they can buy into. And what a what a crazy comment on the nature of our politicization and uh, the impact, right? And not to um, to tear down uh, Chelsea Clinton's point, but it just speaks to like where they are in the country. Right. Well, to me, to me, these things these things aren't political. I don't think that. The standards of the, by which you judge whether a medicine or a vaccine work, there are little things about them that have traditionally been political. There's usually a difference between where Republicans and Democrats set the safety versus efficacy trade-offs on new drugs. But to a first approximation, the, the standard's been you got to do a big study that proves that the people who get the thing do better than the people who don't get the thing. And one of the beautiful things is for all this complicated science that is simple. You know, you can't argue with it at some level. And it really is the kind of thing that we should be able to elevate above politics. And the evidence for taking, zooming out from COVID and just looking at vaccines, you can see when vaccines are introduced for new diseases, the bacteria that caused my ear infections as a kid aren't circulating anymore. Because Prevnar and Hib, like all these vaccines that were developed over a long period of time, my kids got them and they still got sick from one thing or another, but they probably got less sick. And a lot of the bacteria that were circulating that caused things like meningitis in children are just gone because of vaccines. So it, it, it's really important. Yeah. There is no doubt in, in medical history that vaccines have been incredibly important to reducing the burden and the mortality to infectious diseases. I predict that there's going to be no difference when it comes to COVID-19 either. You know, the science ought to be elevated over the uh, politics. So that brings us to our last question, Matt. When are you going to get your vaccine and when are you going to recommend your family do the same? Oh, I mean, when we're in line and we're going to be relatively late in line. As a guy in his 40s who is not a frontline worker, I'm not going to be the first one offered a shot. Right now, the plan isn't that people are going to get to choose their vaccines. 
When we're talking about the Moderna and Pfizer from the data we've seen so far, I don't see a reason why you'd say no to either of them unless you were contraindicated because of allergy or something. You know, we'll see what the data for the other ones look like. I actually do think it's really important. I feel like there's been a lot of talk of people saying, well, I'm going to roll up my sleeve and get the vaccine. We're just seeing the data as you and I are having this conversation. We're just in the process of seeing the Pfizer data be released for an FDA briefing, which is going to give us a lot more information about that vaccine. We shouldn't act like all that information is out yet, which is what I'd want to make a decision. From everything I've seen so far, I really would like me, my parents, other members of my family, I'd like, I'd, I'd like them to get vaccines as soon as possible. Uh, it, it looks like good data. But we should be careful that we're going to learn more. You know, this is, that's, that's how science works. And that's why we should have confidence in this process, because we're still learning a lot. And we'll know a lot more before most people who hear this even have an opportunity to get a vaccine. That's right. Well, we appreciate you uh, shedding light on uh, on your reporting and, and sharing your perspective with us and hope that we all stay safe and we get a vaccine uh, not before long. So thank you again for your time, Matt. Thank you so much. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. One of the upsides of deploying the vaccines among frontline healthcare workers first and foremost is that the folks people trust most to give them honest advice about the pandemic, their doctors and nurses, will be the first to have gotten vaccinated. As we discussed with Angie and Matt, Assuring that people trust in this vaccine is going to be critical. I've personally reviewed the effectiveness and safety data coming out of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine trials. And after reviewing the data myself, I'm even more impressed at the scientific feat that's been accomplished here. This is a safe and extremely effective vaccine. And Sarah and I are planning to get vaccinated as soon as our numbers are called. Before we go, I want to remind you that it's not enough to end this pandemic if we don't address the inequity and disinvestment that allowed it to happen in the first place. That means we need to equip the incoming Biden administration with the legislature they need to get some real legislation passed. And that takes us back to Georgia. The January 5th runoff in Georgia that will determine control of the Senate is right around the corner. Early voting is already taking place. So if you've been waiting for the right time to get involved, that right time is now. Head over to votesaveamerica.com Georgia to find something you can do right now and sign up to Adopt Georgia and volunteer to support groups doing the work in Georgia between now and January. Oh, and don't forget to head over to the Crooked store because we just did a restock on our wildly popular Science Always Wins sweatshirt, t-shirt, and dad hat. So if you missed out on it the first time or simply just want to show the world that you believe in science, what heresy, and enjoy wearing fashionable clothing, then head to crooked.com store right now and grab yours today. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Veronica Simonetti mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takaya Suzawa and Alex Ruggiera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and me, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. 